0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. And I think a little fear.
0: But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. The Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show, more than 500 and counting, are all available for free. If you would like to support this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash other ppl pod that's patreon.com slash other ppl pod thank you
1: you are not alone you have found other people You and
0: I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Gee, what a struggle, you know? Incredible. You know, it's like your head
1: exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad
0: Listy. Just one person at just one time. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. I'm really happy to have Tao Lin back on the program. He is celebrating the publication of his first uh, full-length or book-length work of nonfiction. The book is called Trip, Psychedelics, Alienation, and Change. It is available now from Vintage. It is also the official May pick of the Nervous Breakdown book club. The NervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own monthly book club. So Tao Lin uh, and I in conversation talking about psychedelics and uh, a bunch of other stuff. That's coming up in just a second. I, uh, I, was, I took Twiggy, my dog, into the uh, groomer today for the first time. She's transitioning out of this uh, puppy phase where she was small enough for me to like bathe at home in one of these little tubs in the backyard. And, I, you know, she kind of outgrew it. So today I, I was like, you know what? I'm going to take her to the groomer. We're going to get this sorted out. We're going to get her properly like, uh, you know, bathed, we'll get her nails clipped you know, get that undercoat out of there, all that kind of stuff. So she got dropped off by my wife and, uh, I had to go pick her up. It's like two hours. It wasn't, it wasn't that long of a process. She got dropped off. They called, they said, you know, your dog is ready. Come pick her up. So I go over to this groomer place and I walk in and I'm like, you know, there's a young woman, uh, like about 25 who brings Twiggy out and, uh, you know, I, I tweeted about this, like Twiggy comes out, she sees me, she's like wagging her tail wildly. She's whining a little bit in excitement. And, uh, this young woman groomer, she's like, you know, wow, she looks so happy. She's so excited. It's like that kind of exchange. And, uh, she's like, wow, you know, like can't believe how happy she looks. And I was like, well, she's all clean. And then Twiggy starts barking and, this woman like comments on how excited Twiggy is, and then I make a joke where I say, "Yeah, you know, you, she gets her anal glands expressed, and she's a brand new woman." Like dog groomer humor, right? Groomer humor. <laughs> I thought it was benign, but this woman, uh, di- this young woman, did not laugh at all. Like she went, she sort of grimaced. She, you know, I tweeted about this. She went straight faced. It's like completely, like the joke completely died. And I felt self-conscious about it uh, as I was driving home. I tweeted about it. I thought it was sort of funny. Like, it's sort of funny to f- when your joke fails. But then I started questioning, like, I was like, wow, that's weird, you know, that, that it failed. Is that inappropriate? Did I cross some sort of line? Like, this has been an obsession of mine recently. Like, wh- like, where do you cross the line with humor? Like, where is the line if you're making a joke? Is it okay to make an anal gland joke with your uh, dog groomer? in America. But, you know, as I reflected on uh, the joke, like, here, here's what's interesting, is that, like, I think the joke was, triber- uh, was triggered subconsciously by the fact that this groomer was wearing, uh, of all things, white-blue jeans. You know how they are like, white jeans? Is that what you call them, white-blue jeans? It makes no sense, but you know what I'm talking about, white jeans. They exist in the world. Some people wear white jeans, women, especially sometimes men, but mostly women. And, uh, I mean, this is kind of like a sophomore. It might be a little crude, but it's the truth. Like years ago, uh, my wife and and a couple of her friends, like we were out, I think this was maybe even before, like we had kids because I, because we were out It's like back when we used to go out, we were sitting around with friends, having drinks. And, uh, like some woman walked by wearing white jeans and my wife and her friends started laughing and they're like, Oh, and I'm like, what's so funny. And they're like, well, you know, women who wear white jeans, like anal sex, which <laughs> I started laughing. It was like funny, you know, it was just goofy, like friend talk or whatever. And I was like, where did you guys get this? And they're like, you don't know. Like, that's like, they were sort of teasing me like, Oh yeah. Like women who wear white jeans. They're into it. And, uh, you know, it's good for a laugh or whatever. And it's, the, but the, the problem is that it's the kind of thing where like, once you've heard that it never quite leaves you. And I distinctly remember like, so like basically what happens is <laughs> basically what happens is like, once you've heard that everywhere, every time you're out and you see someone, you see like a woman in white jeans, I'm always thinking to myself, Well, like, wow, shout it from the rooftops. Why don't you, you know, it's like this little weird, funny, like private joke you have with yourself, but it then becomes, uh, you know, it can also turn dark and uncomfortable. Like when your mom wears white jeans or like your aunt or something, she's like 64 and you have these like intrusive thoughts. You're like, I don't want to be thinking about this with the white jeans. But once it's there. So this groomer, (laughs) this feels like a, like a Howard Stern bit, but this groomer was wearing white jeans. And I think when I walked in, I know when I walked in, I saw the white jeans and I was like, oh, white jeans. And so then I think there was just like anal in my head. I made an anal gland joke as a result of that like call it Freudian, call it whatever you want. It was just there in my brain. That's the reason why it happened. It's not my fault. I didn't come up with this. Somebody put this in my head and now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm putting it in yours for the rest of your life. Every time you see somebody in white jeans, I promise you, you're going to remember this monologue. Hey folks, if you are a writer, if you're somebody who's struggling to write, if you're trying to write a book but failing, if you're failing to write a book but wishing you could, if you've written a book but you're not sure if it's any good and you need to make it better, all of the above, you know what I'm talking about? I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. This is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond. Steve has been a guest many times on this show. I actually spoke with him on this very podcast about this very book not too long ago. You should listen to it. Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow is based on three decades of Steve's career. Writing, failing, and trying again. Richard Russo calls it one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also The Funniest by a Country Mile. This is a book that debunks the well-meaning but misguided myths that can hold us back from writing our deepest and most truthful work. It employs the same radical empathy that Steve displayed as co-host with Cheryl Strade on the Dear Sugars podcast, and it will help you generate new work. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Anyway. Uh, Tao Lin is my guest today. His new book is called Trip, Psychedelics, Alienation, and Change. It is a very unconventional recovery narrative. And uh, he and I talk about this a little bit. Uh, I really enjoyed this book. As, you, as many of you know who listen to this show, uh, psychedelics are a uh, running fascination of mine. I find this subject matter very interesting. And uh, worth exploring. And Tao has done uh, a very admirable job of describing the changes that he's been going through over the past uh, couple of years or few years in his life with regard to transitioning off of pharmaceutical, like corporate pharmaceutical drugs and instead uh, using uh, like cannabinoids and psychedelics, or I guess cannabis is a psychedelic, but you'll see when we talk. It was really fun to have him here And uh, I'm very pleased to share this conversation with you. Here he is, folks. This is Tao Lin, and his book, One More Time, is called Trip.
1: So far today, I've had 1.75 cups of iced coffee from Chameleon brand iced coffee, which I've been drinking for like three years.
0: Why Chameleon?
1: I chose it because it was cold brewed and organic.
0: Okay, because like the thing is, is like I, I I'm constantly refining my diet, and I'm, I'm very susceptible when I read things online. You you share a lot of uh, like links to articles and stuff. I'm always reading them voraciously, trying to like figure out what to consume. Coffee's okay, you think?
1: I think it's okay. Yeah. Okay. And also, I
0: chose it because on their
1: website they said each cup had 270 milligrams of caffeine, and I wanted to know the exact amount I was taking because I change it by increments of one-eighth sometimes.
0: That's You're so precise. You actually measure. I think most people when they're drinking coffee or they're smoking weed or eating edibles or taking any, you know, they, there's kind of like, they, they sort of eyeball it, but I feel like you're pretty precise.
1: Yeah. I used to eyeball it and I would just think like, this will be a surprise how much this is (laughs) and that'll be fun. But over years through my notes it's evolved and i've gotten more refined and precise with it
0: well but i think that that's smart in particular with cannabis and especially with psychedelics where if you get the dosage wrong on edibles or on mushrooms or something things can get hairy and and you can kind of ruin your time yeah and 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 everybody's dosage is different too it's not like there's a one size fits all
1: yeah, with cannabis, it's been helpful to note the time I took the last hit, because the hit doesn't fully take effect until 15 minutes for me. And often, if I don't keep track of the time, I'll just take another hit before 15 minutes and keep doing it.
0: And like a hit from a like a vape pen—is that what you mean, or from a pipe? Or a,
1: I've been using a water bong the past year and a half or so.
0: Okay, and like, what is your daily? Like do you have a routine? Like do cuz you use cannabis the way I think some people use coffee, right? It's like sort of like a the daily ritual.
1: Yeah, it is. With ca- cannabis I do have a routine. I've been using it around 5 hours. I've been smoking it around 5 hours after waking the past year and a half or so. And I'm also on other drugs right now. I ate some tobacco.
0: You ate prob- tobacco?
1: Probably like 0. 0.2 grams of tobacco.
0: Like from like where like what you just go to the store and get some tobacco?
1: Yeah, you can get a pouch and I got American spirit or organic tobacco, it's in like little strips. Yeah. And I just eat that. Why? And point you- two grams is like one third to one fourth of a cigarette. And if you eat it, it lasts for like sixty to ninety minutes. And I feel just a caffeine effect, but also I feel more intimate with people and social because tobacco has these compounds called beta carbolines that people usually don't know tobacco has and beta carbolines is the same thing in ayahuasca that i think makes you feel warmer around people
0: now are are beta carbolines activated when you smoke tobacco
1: yeah, it's just, they're just in tobacco. Okay. These compounds. But you don't ha- you
0: don't have to eat it to enjoy the effect. You could smoke it and enjoy that same effect.
1: Yeah, when you smoke it, I smoke it also sometimes, or not sometimes often, and I feel the same effect. But there's a stronger rush at the beginning, and the effect is briefer, only like fifteen to twenty minutes. If I've been smoking. Each day,
0: and what about the carcinogenic effects of like smoking? You obviously you have to you have to be willing to accept all of that. You're inhaling tobacco smoke.
1: Yeah, I think it's not as bad as people think, though, because a lot of the negative effects of smoking is from all the pesticides and additives and cigarettes. And if you're just using organic tobacco, there's none of that. And Aboriginals have been using tobacco for centuries to millennia, and they're fine.
0: Well, I was going to say... But, but um,
1: they haven't been smoking it until modern people introduced that. So there probably is some negative to smoking it. I've been trying to smoke less. And eat That's more. That's why I said sometimes yeah. instead of often. <laughs> I was thinking like
0: now, yeah, I was past two days. I, I was going to ask you, because I know you have uh, like done deep research about like aboriginal cultures, and you've looked to history for answers to what like ails modern man. And uh, when it comes to tobacco... I wouldn't know this, but, like, did Aboriginal people, they ate tobacco?
1: Yeah, they ate it and also used it as snuff. And they put it in various things. They put it in ayahuasca and other snuffs, which they blew up each other's noses.
0: Okay. And, I, and like, in ayahuasca ceremonies, don't the ayahuascaros like, blow tobacco smoke at people while they're tripping?
1: Yeah, they use that also. Right. Kathleen like- Harrison, Terrence McKenna's ex-wife, is one factor getting me more interested in tobacco. Oh, really? Yeah, because she gave a four-hour workshop on tobacco recently. She knows a lot about tobacco and aboriginal uses of tobacco.
0: And it, it makes it makes sense sort of that like in uh, turning it into like a mass-marketed consumer product that it would be perverted and distorted and, you know, any kind of positive aspects to it would be sort of papered over.
1: Yeah, because... If you think about it, it's a plant. It's also nutritious. It has vitamins and amino acids and minerals.
0: Well, see, now I'm going to eat fucking tobacco.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I recommend trying it. And I also had half, around half, no, three-fourths of a joint, of a sativa joint I bought yesterday.
0: And when did you smoke that?
1: Around 10 to
0: 10.30. Okay. Okay. So like shortly before coming over. Yeah. See, this is what I, cause like I, I really want to be able to use cannabis and to have it have, um, you know, these kind of energizing and, uh, enlightening, um, I want to have those experiences. What I often find is that it either doesn't jive with my life cause I have a family and work stuff and I just can't find a way to do it without feeling like it's inhibiting me somehow. And I, I ultimately think, I don't know if my neurochemistry jives with it as well as some other people. Like, is that, that's a, a component of it, right? Like you have a neurochemistry that you can do this stuff and it, it, uh, integrates well.
1: Yeah. And I also have a life that integrates it well. I don't have many obligations, right? But I don't feel like I experienced many significantly Different states of mind. The way I use cannabis every day, because I haven't, I didn't smoke it for around forty-eight hours after going on book tour, and then I smoked it, and it reminded me of its actual effects. Right. Because when you smoke it every day, it just brings you sort of to normal. Right. But maybe a little bit more
0: stoned. Yeah, because I used to smoke pot all the time. Like daily, and I think I was used to it. And you just get sort of like this baseline experience.
1: Yeah, that's what I'm in most of the time. But I also eat it, and that can bring me to a more stone place.
0: Yes, that that, that gets more hallucinatory. I feel like, and yeah, it, it could be it lasts really longer.
1: Strong. Yeah, lasts longer and it can be really strong.
0: So, I, but, but you're, when you're smoking pot, you take one hit. No, you take many.
1: ideally. I feel like I'll take one hit. I can remember months when I would just take one hit and for two or three hours, I'd be stoned. That was when I was using it more carefully. Right. But the way I'm using it now, when I realized, remembered its effects, I remembered passages in my book and I was like, wow, that's actually (laughs) its effects. And I was re-inspired to use it more carefully.
0: And do you feel like it feeds your creative life like you get great ideas? Are you able to remember because i can I can you know I can have these great like epiphanies when I'm baked um and I've, I remember the same thing with psychedelics, but they're very slippery and if you don't I find if you don't like write them down and sometimes even if you do, you know you sober up a little bit and it's like ah, I lost it, you know or what was that like are yeah. you are you able to uh keep track? you have a pretty good memory
1: I feel like Taking notes helps a lot. Taking notes immediately. Like in my book, for my DMT trips, right after it, I would start typing. If I didn't do that, I would forget the entire, most of the DMT trip. And it's like that for other psychedelics also.
0: Well, I feel like this is worth exploring because, you know, having read Taipei and having read Trip, I feel like the research aspect of your work is really impressive like both like the depth and breadth of the reading that you do especially for trip like you really dig in uh like no shortcuts like you you re- seems like you read uh dozens of books scientific papers like, you really went in and yeah, then
1: one thing terrence mckenna promoted a lot that that i've gotten really into is learning he promoted that people learn things for themselves he had quotes like for one Person to seek enlightenment from another is like a grain of sand trying to seek enlightenment from another. Right. And that has inspired me to read a lot of nonfiction books and scientific
0: papers. And to figure it out for yourself. Yeah.
1: But I don't think I did a comprehensive reading at all. I just went with my interests, a few books in each direction.
0: Well, I think you have to sort. I mean, to a certain degree, you have to get enough breadth in order to have a grasp, to be able to write about it. But if you're trying to be comprehensive or trying to sort of do the reading as a duty, like an academic duty, then I think it becomes drudgery.
1: Yeah. That wouldn't have worked. I wouldn't have done that. Felt motivated to do that.
0: And so in addition, like in, in terms of the way that your books, uh, form and in way that, in the way that you sort of research them and gather the raw materials for them, in addition to doing deep reading, uh, I feel like you're also pretty disciplined about note taking. Uh, I feel like videos that you've shot, like you've captured psychedelic experiences and drug experiences in the past, which I think you've then used as source material, which you may have, like, you know, tweaked a little bit. But, like, that part of your life, like you're very carefully recording your life, at least compared to most people.
1: Yeah, I've gotten addicted to that, I think, since 2006, probably. Just when I started writing autobiographically. And then that evolved into, in 2010, me and my ex-wife, Megan Boyle, started a film company and we recorded ourselves a lot.
0: Right. MDMA Films. Yeah. Is that still going? Or is it defunct? Or is it just sort of a an entity like floating?
1: Floating. And yeah. maybe something <laughs> could come a bit later. Sure. And then from there in 2013 I wanted to retire from autobiographical writing. I thought I'd got done all I could do with it, but then I went deeper into it. And for my next novel, which I've been working on since 2014. I've been, I've recorded a lot of voice memos of me interacting with my parents. Okay.
0: And this is Leave Society? Yeah. And it's, a, and it's, is it about your parents or is it about your life with your parents? Mostly.
1: Yeah. Cause the last four years I've visited my parents every year for two to three months, which is more than I've ever visited them.
0: And so you're hanging out, you're doing, you're recording. Do they know that they're being recorded? Sometimes.
1: <laughs> yeah. For around <laughs> half the time, they, like at some point I told them. But I think before that, they already knew. I told they knew, I was writing about them. Because in Taipei, I wrote about them, and yeah. I told them like I'd be writing about them even more in the next book.
0: I feel like the mo- maybe the most moving section of Taipei for me, anyway, was the section where you're you know writing about childhood and the relationship with your mother and the teenage years. I'm recalling from memory, mm-hmm. um, but that stuff's very affecting. I'm excited to read about this. And uh, I'm curious too, that when you're doing these voice memos and you're using your phone to record, are you functioning in like a capacity like me where you're interviewing them? Or are you just sort of passively recording conversation to try to get like rhythms of speech or certain expressions or.
1: I've done both things. I've been really deliberate in, in my notes. I would plan like what questions I would ask my parents and then record myself asking them. And I've also recorded and forgot I've been recording. And also I've recorded samples just to get certain things I wanted to record. Like my parents bickering. One time they were seemed to be like somewhat hiddenly bickering <laughs> and I wanted <laughs> to capture that cause I knew I won't be able to remember right. it cause it was so subtle.
0: And then you transcribe. Yeah. Is that so like, just to give, cause I think listeners, especially the writer people out there be interested to know like what it looks like on a daily basis for you in terms of how you document your experiences for use in books. So it's recording, it's taking, I would imagine uh, notes on your phone in like the notes app. Yeah, I do that also. Okay. So if something, you know, you have an interesting thought, you see something on the subway, whatever it happens to be, you just, you're just putting it into a file there.
1: Now, I, I used to do notes on my phone, but now I moved it to my computer. And if I think of something, I'll just email it to myself and put it into the notes on my computer. And also, I've been just trying to remember better. I've been trying that for years.
0: I feel like you have a great memory. Am I wrong? I mean, like, cause the, I mean, a part of it is that you are good about keeping detailed notes and keeping track of what happens. But when I read your work, it's like, wow, he's like remembering like there's incredible recall happening. So it's some combination of the two. Is your memory unusually good? Do you have like a photo? no,
1: No, I don't have a photographic memory. I think of my memory as bad.
0: So you do not have a photographic memory. No. Okay. Reading,
1: writing this book, I've realized more how unreliable my memory is just from like, if I read an article, if I read, like, three articles on something, I still won't be able to explain it to someone. I have to read, like, two books on it and write about it and edit these sentences and keep reading them before I can accurately, confidently share the ideas with someone
0: that makes, I've okay, That makes me feel better. That's it, good. Because the, I think I'm getting the end result of it all, and it's like, wow, like, what, what's wrong with me? <laughs> but it makes me feel better that you're doing all this work. It makes more sense because I have... Uh, I talk about this, I feel like on every episode, like an incredibly slippery memory that I just feel like, especially as I get a little bit older, I'm like, wow, I can't remember like what anything, like what happened yesterday or I don't know, things just sort of go. And so I,
1: and also I found, I need to keep talking about something repeatedly in variations to people to remember it. So I'll often say the same idea to people I talk to in my life, which is mostly only my girlfriend now.
0: (laughs) She hears it all. Yeah. Um, So that's it. So it's notes on you. You email notes to yourself uh, as they happen throughout the day. You're taking voice memos. Are you ever just talking into your phone where it's just you?
1: I've done that a few times.
0: Okay. And then are you ever passively recording, like, when you're out in the world? If you're, like, sitting next to somebody on the train or something who's saying something funny? or
1: Yeah, I do that. My girlfriend and I have recorded bird noises, and I put it in a playlist that's calming. And we were recently at a restaurant with her brother and his wife. And there are people, we were at this counter at a Japanese restaurant where only eight people were and people beside us. They were speaking a weird form of Mandarin that I couldn't place the accent at all. And I recorded some of that.
0: And then you email to yourself, or I guess like you email the voice memo to yourself?
1: It just gets uploaded to my computer when I plug it in.
0: And then do you do like, like rigorous trance? Because I can imagine if you pile up all these voice memos the transcribing gets to be, I know this from my own podcast. I've thought about having these things transcribed. I've
1: Someone f- else should do it. I've got 500 episodes.
0: If I paid somebody to do this, it would be multiple thousands of dollars. So I don't know what to do. I'm like, Oh shit. I should have been doing this as I, you know, as I went to try to like limit the workload. But if you let them stack up, it becomes this like mountain of work. So maybe
1: you could get people, volunteers to transcribe it. You know, Cause I, there's this Terrence McKenna transcription project online. And volunteers are transcribing all his talks.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, his talk. I want want to get to Terrence because his talks uh, have had a big impact on me. And obviously, they've had a big impact on you. Um, But before we get there, I want to talk. About the voice
1: memos? Oh, Because the voice memos, they do pile up. And I found that out of like the 50 I recorded with my parents, I'll probably only listen to like three of them. Right. And I've only transcribed one of them. The 15 minute or so one
0: was it extra good you're like oh i gotta get yeah this. that's
1: the one i wanted it's one where my parents toy poodle doo doo we're on a walk and she just stops walking and she's like 50 feet away and we're calling her and she doesn't walk for five minutes then i go and pick her up <laughs> why did she stop she's just done it's unknown a few theories is that she just doesn't want to go in that direction sometimes.
0: Was it hot out or something? Was she hot?
1: It didn't seem hot. Okay. Or she was depressed and just catatonic standing there. <laughs> or she was just resting and enjoying like looking around. Because sometimes me and my parents will stand there. It's one of those probably.
0: Okay, cool. And that will probably figure into Leave Society.
1: Yeah. So- I transcribed it and it's like 3,000 words
0: like a preview. It's like a sneak preview somehow. Yeah. Uh, micro dosing. I want to add, cause this, this is fascinating to me because I feel like maybe it's more my speed. doesn't seem like the effects are as strong and yet like the effects, meaning like, it's not like this super intense where you got to do set and setting and you've got to be sort of away from your kids. And, but if you're microdosing uh, psychedelics, uh, there's the book by, uh, Islet Waldman. Did you read it?
1: Not yet, it's but a- I saw that it begins with a Terrence McKenna quote okay, on yeah. how something about if the life, if the pursuit of happiness, something about that and how the Constitution's printed on hemp.
0: Right, right. <laughs> well, I, I bought that book, and I actually haven't had a chance to read it because my wife grabbed it, and she's been reading it. Hmm. Um, but uh, she's all about microdosing and has had... Uh, I think like based on the book description, uh, and some stuff that I'd read about it, a great experience in dealing with depression by taking microdoses of psychedelics, as opposed to like SSRIs or more traditional, like pharmacological approaches. And then I know too, that people who suffer from cluster headaches, which can be super debilitating and, uh, like a terrible problem in a person's life to have these things, uh, micro of psychedelics as. has, has Shown to be effective against that as well. So there's, and then there's people who use it as like a biohacking approach to like get a competitive edge at work. <laughs> you know, like those, yeah. those kinds of things start to creep me out a little bit because you're like, wow, it feels like a perversion somehow. Uh, but yet, I guess people, you know, want to be, they want to thrive, they want to feel better in their lives or whatever. Uh, That's a-
1: how I've used it, but not at work. I mean, not in an office, in my life, since my life is so connected with my writing. I've used it to be more productive and to let myself feel more wonder and awe occasionally. Otherwise, I can get uninterested in
0: things. How how regularly? Because I know you're supposed to, like, space it out every third day or whatever. You take a microdose of, like, psilocybin powder or whatever or uh, I guess, like, some sort of... Like, the, the dosing and, like, trying to figure out how to, like... Get it right stresses me out, like the weighing, especially if you're dealing with like liquid acid or whatever. Like, how do you get that right? But
1: Yeah, and also you don't know if it's real acid or not, if you're getting tabs of it, which is what I've been using. And I tried micro dosing for two weeks, like a month ago. I did it not every third day because I would adjust it due to things I had that day. And I used between like one twelfth and one eighth of a tap each time in the morning. And i would feel energized almost the entire day until going to sleep. But I would also feel slightly out of my normal consciousness in a, that in a way that could be overwhelming sometimes and destabilizing.
0: I was going to ask, so you felt it. Yeah. It's it, not like you microdose and it's just like you just feel normal, but you're a little better, which is sort of how it's described sometimes. Yeah.
1: that's I found that misleading, at least for me. I do feel in a slightly different consciousness where I have different associations and memories of things. I feel less in my normal thread, normal narratives. And that bothers me a little.
0: Would, would you? But my- I
1: also, during this time was using cannabis, Tobacco and kratom sometimes. And and what? Kratom, it's usually, people pronounce it kratom.
0: Like, like how do you spell it's it? It's
1: this K R A T O M. It's this plant opioid that almost got banned in 2016, but there was a big backlash because people getting off synthetic opioids use this. And it is from Thailand, I think.
0: What kind of, like, how do you take it?
1: It's a powder and you eat it.
0: You just eat the powder with a spoon?
1: Yeah, that's how most people do it. Or in you know, a water.
0: Okay. You sprinkle it on your cereal? <laughs>
1: yeah, you could do that also. That will taste good, probably.
0: Yeah, because, uh, and so, like, with with regard to microdosing, is it something that you could see integrating into your life like on, like a, on a quarterly basis? This isn't something you're going to do every week, every third day. This is something you're going to do two, three, four times a year as, like, a tune up or something.
1: I could see myself doing it two, three times a year, but I feel like I like using it not in a regular way, because I did it regularly for two weeks just to see what it would be like so I'd be able to talk about it. And also, I wrote about it for New York Magazine a little. I, I read that, yeah. And I see myself using it more like just once a week or once a month or something But maybe I'd be able to incorporate it into a lifestyle if I wasn't already using all these other things. Right. I could see myself doing that.
0: And I've, I've read that with microdosing, you're taking a very little bit of, say, psilocybin. Mm-hmm. And then there's the day of. So let's say you microdose in the morning. You might feel uh, a distinct energizing effect. But it, based on what I've read, I've heard that the, the reason why they recommend every third day is that there are actually like trailing effects like the next day it's still kind of working on you
1: yeah i don't know if psilocybin the next day would do that because lsd is lasts especially long because due to the shape of it it gets stuck in the receptor somehow and on the next day i felt i still felt more energized than a normal day but i also thought that partly that might be be because on the previous day On LSD, I was way more active. I rode a bike unexpectedly for like 20 minutes and did other... Was it your bike? No, it was the city bike. Oh, okay. The ones you rent in New York City. That might have been why I felt better the next day. I was just more active. But also on the microdose day, there were a few hours where I felt really depleted. One to two hours, maybe. In the evening? yeah but then after that i was back again
0: okay i'm interested i mean i'm curious i mean that sounds like something I'd, i could try provided i get the dosage right and don't like accidentally like send myself <laughs> <laughs> with tabs
1: it's easy because you just cut it and you can cut it in half and in half again
0: with like an exacto knife or
1: yeah with a, the a small knife
0: okay uh i want to ask you about autobiographical writing because uh you know, you read Taipei, which is the last novel you published and it ends with, uh, the Paul character, which is a, you know, a surrogate for you. That's the way I always read it, uh, tripping on psilocybin thinking that he has died. Uh, and speaking of not having a good memory, I distinctly remember the end of that book where he looks down and steps into those sandals and is suddenly grateful to be alive. That's like literally, or like has that thought, you know, as a kind of a curiosity. And it's such an interesting place for that novel to end. And what makes it even more interesting to me is that your next book almost literally picks up right where that leaves off. It's like you finish that book and then trip is like the next day, almost, you know? So like, there's this like continuous thread and, and, uh, I think that's part of the reason why I was so excited to read trip once I got a sense of it and especially once I started it. And then I also feel like, um, and this is sort of an aside, but I feel like in our relationship over the years, because you write so autobiographically and I've read these books, uh, I feel like I, I know you, there's so much of you in there. You're so honest and exploring what's going on within you and around you that I think you can probably often create an imbalance between like your readers and you where they feel like they have this knowledge of you. But of course you couldn't have an an equal knowledge of them having not read similar work. And I guess that happens to me as a podcaster where like somebody's listened to like a lot of this podcast and comes up to me and is like, has all this familiarity. And then I'm like, well, wait, who are you? (laughs) So anyway, uh, I I just want you to talk a little bit about where you ended with Taipei, which, you know, you address this in trip, but I think listeners who haven't read the book would, would like to get a sense and how that led into the writing of TRIP.
1: In Taipei in August, it ends in August 2012, I think, with the psilocybin TRIP you described. And then TRIP begins a month later when I encountered Terrence McKenna for the first time in September. And before I encountered Terrence, I'd used psychedelics probably like 20 to 30 times. And each time after using it for a few days or maybe a week, I'll feel more interested in life and better. But I'd eventually get absorbed back into feeling depressed. How much were you you taking? I was taking small to medium doses.
0: Okay. But trip, like you were fully tripping?
1: For some of them. Like in the end of Taipei, I was. That was like. The amount wasn't specified, because at some point he, or he didn't weigh it at all. That was probably like three to four grams of dried psilocybin mushroom. But when I encountered Terrence McKenna, his ideas combined with psychedelics, my use of psychedelics, reinterested me in psychedelics and in life. Because before him, I vaguely subscribed to existentialism. Which said that we're in a in different universe and people need to make meaning themselves. But Terence McKenna pointed out that we can get meaning from nature. Because he corrected Sartre, because Sartre said nature is mute. And McKenna said obviously it's humans who are deaf. Hmm. And besides getting meaning from nature, he also promoted getting nature from, or meaning from books. In all people, instead of say just one book or one person,
0: yeah, literature factors uh, hugely into his worldview and into his like kind of uh, overarching philosophy. It feels like it's in the middle somewhere, and I always feel just as a like I think that's part of why I'm such a big hiker, I mean, even in Los Angeles, where nature experience almost has to be put in quotes because you're in the middle of this big city, but just getting some contact it feels essential to me. Like I have to have that. I have to like feel like I'm away in the trees. And I don't know. It's like, uh, it's not something I've really even need to articulate to myself. You can just feel it when you're out there.
1: Yeah. Something is when inside, I feel like my eyes move much less. If I'm looking at a tree, my eyes will like have things to look at or birds miles will follow the bird but in my room i'm just staring at the exact same place on a computer screen my eyes are focused at the exact same place and then i'll look away and i'll see a wall
0: and you know and it's uh, a <laughs> <laughs> it's it's interesting to me too that if you're not awake in your life which i often am not because i'm lost in my like chatter of thoughts or i'm you know busy or i'm distracted in any number of ways uh, i will sometimes uh, kind of criticize myself, but also I'll sometimes kind of marvel at like how much I miss like birds, there's birds everywhere, like flying around. It's, it's incredible to me that I wouldn't like stop and acknowledge that more often or all these trees and flowers, which are like so beautiful and everywhere. And yet it's very easy for me on an average day to not actually see a single bird. Uh, Yeah.
1: I paid much less attention to trees. Before the writing trip, I had never noticed that there's ginkgo trees everywhere in Manhattan. And then once I started writing and noticing that, I noticed them everywhere and I noticed other trees and their different trunks and leaves.
0: I feel like, and you, you were like, when you were in Taiwan, I feel like you were collecting leaves. I would see that on Twitter a lot. Yeah. Like you would go out into the forest and pick up leaves and then bring them back and photograph them.
1: Yeah, Terrence McKenna and Kathleen Harrison both promoted nature a lot. Kathleen Harrison has this recommendation that if you feel self-absorbed in some way, you can just look at a leaf, take a leaf and look at it for a while.
0: Get out of yourself.
1: Yeah, and that has helped me a few times.
0: So uh, when you talk about getting into Terrence McKenna and how that changed your view of psychedelics, did it also change your experience of being on the drugs once you had that context and like a, a deeper understanding of the meaning of those drugs, or I don't know what the proper way to put it, but do you know what I'm saying? Like w- were your trips different?
1: They were different. I started planning more and weighing doses and for maybe a year or two, my trips will be dominated by thoughts about Terrence McKenna just from listening to him so much. And I would try to do experience things that he did sometimes, like try to hear voice and stuff. But since then, I've had, I don't think of him during trips anymore, more than other things. And I also, I never had thought of them in terms of aboriginals. Now I think of psychedelics as the oldest thing that possibly led to the oldest religion that aboriginals have used for tens of thousands of years maybe and before i didn't have that context
0: do you subscribe to mckenna's what is it called the stoned ape theory do you think that it was a catalyst for evolution like it seems
1: pretty convincing that it's at least one factor Because the mushrooms would just be growing out of cow dung all over Africa. And there's a lot of documentation of animals using psychedelics, apes and gorillas.
0: Not in a ritualistic way, like just in sort of an accidental way? Or would they figure out what they did? Are they capable of that? (laughs) Yeah, I read this book called Animals and
1: Psychedelics, and it seems that they deliberately will seek it out. Not just accidentally and even i think this one tribe i've read that they started using iboga when they saw apes or gorillas using them
0: and iboga is really good about like it helps people like kick heroin yeah did you ever read uh it's funny i interviewed his mom but it was the book by daniel pinchbeck
1: yeah it did breaking open the head yeah i like that
0: he, he had My a,
1: favorite parts were the beginning parts, because he was the editor of, or an editor of Open City, this literary magazine. And he was talking about how bleak his life was, and then he
0: used psychedelics. And he went to, I think he went to Africa and, like, did Iboga. That's an investment. Yeah, he did. He did. Like, not an invest—not only an investment to get to Africa, but, like, that's an investment of time. you got to be ready for Iboga.
1: Yeah, Iboga lasts, like, 12 to 36 hours or something. (laughs) It seems so crazy.
0: I need a babysitter. You know what I need? This is my fantasy is that there's going to be some study with some like, you know, very uh, educated professors at like UCLA and they're going to be asking for volunteers and I'll get to go in with like minders. And like, if things really start to go sideways, they can, they can sedate me or whatever.
1: Yeah, that sounds good. There are studies. I feel like looking for volunteers.
0: I'm going to try to volunteer. That would be the, maybe the best option for me. Uh, before- I read the, Timothy Leary's book, High Priest,
1: that was published in 1968 in, recently. And he talks about how in early 1960s, he did DMT tests where people got it injected intravenously, intramuscularly. And he described a lot of positive experiences, like 90-plus percent of people reported really happy, positive experiences. But Terrence McKenna had focused on how weird it is and how you can die by astonishment. And I feel like I focused on that too much and I became afraid of it. But now I feel more open to it.
0: I want to get there. Uh, before we go any further, just because I think some listeners might not be familiar, can you like briefly tell us who Terrence McKenna uh, is slash was?
1: Yeah, Timothy Leary has called him the Timothy Leary of the 90s. And someone else has called him the intellectuals Timothy Leary. (laughs) And he promoted psychedelics a lot, specifically plant psychedelics, psilocybin, mushrooms, cannabis, salvia divinorum, ayahuasca. And he also promoted smoked DMT a lot. And his idea that excited me the most at first was that we're in the middle of a at the end of a brief transformation called history, which to him is a around a fifteen thousand year period when people stopped being nomadic and started starting civilizations. And he thinks that that transformation will end decades to centuries from now, just because of increasing complexification exponential and that will go into a higher dimension which he calls the imagination which to him is a place that's just a higher order of realness and largeness so you could say it's realer than the universe and larger
0: so okay so i gotta stop you there like what does that mean what does that look like when we go into a higher dimension does that mean we still look like ourselves
1: I think it's impossible to imagine just because it's similar. Or one way to imagine is to think that you're a character in a book and then you're released into life. It's just way more complex. But it could be that after we're released into the imagination, we'll be able to read lives. Like right now we read books. And then we'll have some other... Original existence in that dimension that we can't imagine right now,
0: hmm. I mean, and like I think the imagination, if like you know, capital T capital I as, mm-hmm. a, as like this thing that we're moving towards, mm-hmm. uh, is also I think part of how uh, McKenna conceived of the afterlife. Like when we die, we're released into that too. Oh yeah,
1: he feels that when we die, we might be released into the imagination, just like a character would be released into life.
0: And you believe that?
1: It seems the most convincing and exciting and rewarding theory on, on where humans are going that I've heard so far.
0: And so McKenna uh, came into your life right as you were finishing Taipei. Yeah. And he's a guy who went to Berkeley and is an academic. I mean, he's a very well-educated man and had this interest from a young age. Like I'm always fascinated by people who sort of find their thing really early and pursue it with the voraciousness that he pursued this. Uh, he really knew his stuff. And listening to him talk for people who have never done so is incredible. He's an incredible talker. Yeah, he is. You know the The, the unique voice, but also just like the mastery of language and the ability to speak extemporaneously for like hours.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and also how much practice he got.
0: Kathleen Harrison
1: has said that when they lived just them two in a small town he practiced on her and she helped him a lot. And also a lot of practice he got every night doing it. It's like stand-up. Yeah, he developed a form I feel like where he could give like a 45 minute to 90 minute talk improvising it to some degree.
0: Yeah. I remember when you were getting into, I, I was emailing you about this right after I read uh trip. And part of what it was fascinating to me is that I remember listening to a lot of Terrence McKenna, like podcasts, like his lectures were, you know, I would listen to them as audio files right around the time that you were. And yet I couldn't remember why. And I guess it maybe it was because you were tweeting about it, or maybe it was because he, like, cause I, I remember Bill Hicks used to talk about him, the comedian, I remember during my time at Boulder, he would be like, you know, he was part of the counterculture and he was one of these like, uh, like, like Timothy Leary, you know, he's one of those guys that everyone sort of, uh, looked up to or whatever. So he was in my brain somewhere and I had, uh, you know, heard talks by him before, but then lost the thread and then came back to it right around that time. And I spent like months just listening to him talk and it is, uh, intoxicating really does make you reconsider your world, uh, I think in a very positive way.
1: Yeah. And he can do it really quickly, like five to 10 minutes. in, you're, you're thinking about completely different things. I heard about him from Joe Rogan. I think a lot of people heard about him from Joe Rogan podcast. He talks about him often.
0: I feel like you should go on Joe Rogan's podcast.
1: Yeah. I'd like that. Are you going to do it? If he wants me, isn't he? I can't just do it. (laughs) (laughs) Just go over to his house (laughs) to send him my book and stuff. But I feel like I could do that later on.
0: Yeah, you guys could have a productive conversation because he's done like the. Wouldn't he go into like the the flotation tanks and do mushrooms? And he's always he's always experimenting on himself. Yeah, it's funny. I I heard someone someone tweeted that uh, like Joe Rogan is like goop for men. You know that sort of makes sense. Like he's a. You know Timothy. I like that <laughs> Timothy Ferris, right? <laughs> Timothy Ferris is sort of that way too. You know, like constantly like tweaking and moderate, You know, and I can get into that. I, I feel like the biohacking thing, though, after a while, like some aspects of it, like veer into vanity, where it's like oh, yeah. I don't, I don't need two percent body fat. I don't need that. Like, yeah, and know. plus
1: I feel like it's helpful to have something where you're using that more energy on. Because I tried to, I do that a lot, biohacking stuff in order to be stabler and talk to people better when i'm around them and to for my writing
0: sure and but you know and also healthier
1: yeah and healthier i think yeah. it's
0: okay i mean it's it's good to be experimenting and reading and learning about that stuff in the interest of like better mental and physical health yeah that all makes sense but it's like if i'm trying to like prettify myself Or if it just gets to be too intense, then at some point you got to relax.
1: Yeah. My main focus has been on reducing my depression and anxiety in college. I looked up on the internet how to do this naturally. And that's when I started getting into diet and natural solutions more.
0: As opposed to taking like antidepressants. Yeah. Did you ever, were you ever on those? No. No.
1: But I wrote this poem where I talk about thinking if I should go on them or not.
0: <laughs> are, are, are there bad side effects to those? Like, because, I think there are. Because some think... people, some people, you know, they they can't live without them. They take them. They're like a lifesaver if they have like a really tricky neurochemistry. But what's the what's the side effect? Dementia
1: and a lot of other diseases, and also I've read that. The effect is mostly or entirely placebo, so you're getting all these negative effects for no reason,
0: really yeah, so like the pills that you're taking when you're taking SSRI are like basically what just nothing like what's in them what do you what do you mean by placebo <laughs> isn't a placebo where it's like like a nothing pill yeah, they
1: give you nothing and then they tell. Well, with antidepressants, if it's mostly placebo, they give it to you, then you're surrounded by all this information that this is going to make you feel better. You're going to the doctor and doing all this stuff, paying for it, and that stuff makes you feel better.
0: Huh. But this
1: book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, talks about this. I haven't read it yet, but this doctor, Kelly Brogan, talks a lot about this. Right. People can
0: look her up. How do you know who to believe it's
1: hard i think by looking at multiple sources and trying to learn why this person's saying that why that person's saying that and also one thing that's helpful is learning biology learning what this compound actually does when it enters your body so you can picture it and understand it and no one you don't have to listen to someone else on whether it's safe or not or what it does, that has helped a lot. Uh,
0: to go back to psychedelics in terms of, you know, combining it with McKenna, um, deepening your appreciation for nature, deepening your interest in finding natural solutions to things like depression. I mean, I guess psychedelics relieved some of your depression as well, it started to change your like your worldview.
1: Yeah, they did. I consider cannabis a psychedelic. And when I start, stopped using Adderall and Xanax and other drugs, pharmaceutical drugs, I started smoking or eating cannabis every day. And I can do that, and it gives me what Xanax and Adderall do and a lot of other stuff. And I don't feel terrible the, other, the next day.
0: Do you usually use Sativa or Indica or a hybrid? Because like, I know there's all that talk about which one to use and... I just did like a, I tried CBD recently, but it still made me feel, or I guess it was CBD with a little bit of THC, but I was trying to like lower the dose cause I'm very sensitive mm. and I still sort of got foggy or You know, I didn't get it right. I've never found my sweet spot in, mm. in my older age. Did you smoke it? The it thing? A, a pen? Yeah. Mm.
1: For me... I'm coming from a place where using Adderall and xanax, I was feeling terrible like all the time, sure, so going from that to to something even something you're describing where i 'm muddy sometimes that's an improvement for me, so yeah, like this is next level <laughs> yeah, I'm like wow, well.
0: <laughs> uh and cannabis too, like well, the thing that always uh draws me to cannabis, and my appreciation for it is that among the intoxicants, or whatever you want to call them, the the uh, common drugs that we use—caffeine, alcohol, yeah, cigarettes—it's by far and away the most benign. Yeah, it is, and uh, has genuine medicinal properties and can be used to treat any number of illnesses effectively. You know, so I don't know. I feel like that needs to get talked about more and more and more and more. It does you know, people smoking cigarettes, especially non-organic. <laughs> You know, but, Which is most of them? Yeah, they're loaded with pesticides and chemicals and God knows what, and people drinking, you know, especially people drinking to like real excess on a daily basis. Like that has a much more uh, negative effect than cannabis.
1: Yeah, when I was drinking, sometimes in my mid to late twenties, it damaged my microbiome a lot. I feel like, and i will be itchy all over.
0: Microbiome meaning your gut.
1: Yeah, my gut bacteria killed a a lot of them.
0: You know, you started me eating sauerkraut every day.
1: Yeah, I remember I sent you something about how sauerkraut has like way, way more microbes in it than a probiotic
0: pill. Yeah, right. And and you know how many times I've shared that link or told like my barber, like I've told that (laughs) stuff. I'm like, you got to really, because here's the thing. I started eating like two tablespoons of sauerkraut a day, basically in the morning and I got the flu I got influenza a in December uh, probably from someone at the office and it knocked me on my ass for a week I got the flu mm. that shit happens in life I don't yeah, care I got
1: I the flu in Taiwan yeah so I've
0: heard this theory on the flu from
1: Stephanie Senev that your body actually uses it to its benefit because the flu virus it transports sulfate from inside muscle cells to the blood and if you don't have sulfate in the blood it turns and you die
0: oh really yeah i heard
1: this from stephanie san this doctor at mit
0: well i'm glad i got the flu then
1: not a medical doctor but other degree
0: like a phd yeah okay So,
1: so maybe some people who need sulfate in their blood will will let the virus come in and do that
0: i've been reading some scary stuff about the flu like these strains of the flu that are like resistant to like, we don't, we're not prepared. And that there could be like another influenza pandemic, like the Spanish flu or whatever that kills like millions of people. Yeah. That would suck. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, but also
1: this glyphosate researcher, Anthony Samsel, he calculates that glyphosate has already, or is eventually going to kill billions of people.
0: Yeah, like what yeah, cuz this is something else that I've been reading about. It's making me feel better about having eaten organic and having eaten uh vegetarian for like since I was 21. Like yeah, I'm not perfect. Good. I'm not perfect, but I feel like at least I've limited my glyphosate intake. It seems like you're way ahead on this story. Uh, you know, you've been tweeting about it a lot in over the past year, I think especially. Yeah, it's cuz
1: of my book cuz I learned In my book, that it was the most used pesticide, and I was writing about pesticides, and it seemed natural just to focus on the most used one.
0: Okay, so glyphosate is in uh, Roundup, Yeah, which is like the Monsanto. It's like the most common industrial pesticide mass-produced.
1: Yeah, and people use it on their lawns also, but it's also used in agriculture. And since the mid-1990s, it's been used way more because that's when... They gen- Monsanto genetically modified plants where they can withstand glyphosate, so they can just spray much more of it Ugh. and the main crop will survive. But there's The Guardian just published an article saying talking about a study that showed that safe levels of glyphosate
0: damage the microbiome. Right. I read that. I just I was looking at your Twitter just, I think this morning.
1: In the New York Times in 2017 published an article saying that Ben and Jerry's ice cream had glyphosate. Oh, I shouldn't. Is nothing <laughs> sacred? <laughs> but that uh. seemed frustrating to me because every food, every non-organic and even some organic food has glyphosate in it.
0: So there's like, oh, you can't, you almost can't escape it. Yeah, you can't escape it. And we should or so- you
1: can't escape it to some, to a large degree. Yeah, I think
0: by so. eating organic. Yeah. By staying away from processed foods or non-organic foods. Yeah. Like I go to the farmer's market uh, in Los Angeles and I will be talking to the people at the little food stands and I'll be like, is this organic? And they'll say, no pesticide. Or they'll say, you know, if we have to, you know, if there's a bug infestation, we'll use organic pesticides.
1: Mm. That's okay. Yeah, that sounds okay. Okay. Like
0: tobacco water or cayenne pepper or stuff like that. You're really making me rethink tobacco. That's good. Yeah, I, I'm curious I'm a, I'm how a, you'll enjoy it. I'm a former smoker, so I was like always like, I got to get away from tobacco. But now I'm going to start eating it
1: because you like stimulant effects, right? I do. Yeah, this is good for that.
0: But there's no edge. Like you don't get you don't feel like uh, you don't have like laughing attacks or anything when you eat tobacco.
1: I don't think so. No, I don't have laughing attacks. I have that on kratom and cannabis. I have too much.
0: Where do you get kratom? This is the uh, opiate, right?
1: Any smoke store has it or online. And it's legal. Yeah, it's legal. And also another drug I had was matcha today. I had around one teaspoon before talking to you. And then I had half a cup of oh, right. this, which you haven't been drinking, the matcha. So I, well,
0: I'm so focused on this conversation, but Tao brought me some uh, matcha. Coconut water. It's a kefir? It's, yeah, kefir. Which it is like a probiotic. 50,
1: yeah, it has 15 billion
0: microbes in it, I think. So what is the most memorable psychedelic experience of your life? Do you have one that you feel like where you came into contact with like the ultimate or like, I don't know, what, or, or some sort of alien entity, which Terrence McKenna sometimes refers to? Like, I'm fascinated by his theories on how mushroom spores could have potentially been brought to earth extraterrestrially because they can survive what like long distance space travel they're sort of indestructible like mushroom spores right
1: yeah that theory people seem to think it sounds crazy but that makes sense to me i was surprised by how short a time it takes for something to just drift across a galaxy it's like 10 million years or something so when you have billions of years anything if it's able to survive will end up being on every planet in the galaxy. And he thinks that possibly a gene was injected into Earth by an alien civilization or just drifted in naturally like tens of millions of years ago, and it went into mushrooms, and the mushrooms began making psilocybin. And if it was an alien civilization, then they would know that putting psilocybin into a mushroom could catalyze a species into something like humans, maybe.
0: Meaning, wait, that that psilocybin helped take more primitive apes and uh, helped to catalyze the evolution into homo sapiens?
1: Yeah, and that's his stone ape theory. Okay. Other people's theories... There's this theory that cooking meat... Made people have more energy, but that doesn't make sense to me because when you cook meat, I feel like it actually becomes less nutritious and able to be digested
0: it can also make it like can can it release some sort of chemical process yeah. that actually makes it unhealthy like yeah. I'm thinking of like uh like bacon and i don't know there's some I remember reading about that somewhere
1: yeah that's why people eat sashimi, and a lot of Aboriginal tribes will eat their meat raw or partially raw.
0: Yeah, you're like drinking eggs and stuff like that. Yeah, you do that. I want to get to the. I want to get to what you eat, but first, I want to hear about like your most memorable trip. Like, is there one that you can point to that like you feel like he really changed you, or was just so fucking weird and interesting that you never never forgot it?
1: I think there is one. It's the one I talk about in chapter four of Trip on Psilocybin in 2013 when I threw away my computer and tweeted that I was. Leaving, quote,
0: this lit game shit behind. (laughs) I remember, like, I experienced that in real time. And I want to say I was, like, talking to Mira Gonzalez or, like, texting her, like, what's up with Tao? Like, I remember, because of your Twitter feed. Yeah, I remember
1: Mira was (laughs) looking at it in real time (laughs) and talking about it. And that's been most memorable for me, partly because of how much I focused on it and that I've written about it in this book. And I experienced a lot of different things during it, but I focused most on this message, leave society, that I feel like is the main message of that trip.
0: What does that mean?
1: People usually think of it as me physically leaving, but to me it's mental and physical, and I focus mostly on mental, mental and some physical aspects, like leaving what most of society eats or consumes of culture or spends their time thinking about
0: you yeah, that's that's really your ethos cuz you don't get in like i noticed that you uh i mean i guess you get political in, in a certain sense you know some of the tweeting you do about uh, like anti consumer culture or like uh, corporate agribusiness i mean that stuff yeah, i think has yeah that would that would qualify in a sense as political but like you don't get into media culture or the news cycle or politics in its uh, most traditional sense in the way that a lot of people do, at least uh, in terms of their public personas online. That's stuff you don't even engage with. And I feel like you do that uh, with a sense of purpose. Like that's a decision you made to disengage.
1: Yeah, I used to be more engaged with that. But I think it's also or it's mostly just so I can focus on my own plan that I already have. Which is what? to gradually do this process of leaving society and also writing about writing my novel, focus on that and my relationship with my girlfriend and parents. Who's your girlfriend? Yuka. She's the editor in chief of soft skull.
0: Okay. I saw like, I, I, you know, I haven't, I don't know all the details, but I saw like a picture of you guys in Hawaii and I was like, Oh
1: yeah. She's publishing your friendly, uh, Dietrich's novel Vanishing Twins in
0: September. Oh, right. Leah Dietrich. Yeah. Vanishing Twins. I have that inside and, uh, I got to get reading, but I've known Leah and I would imagine she'll be here at some point. Um, well, that's cool. And so you're gonna, you're gonna leave. Uh, I know you're getting ready to move to Hawaii. Is that really going to happen? Cause I know you talked about moving to California and then that didn't materialize. Yeah. I, you came out here, but like are you really gonna go to Hawaii? <laughs> I think there's a ninety
1: to ninety five percent chance.
0: And where do you know where in Hawaii? Probably just the main
1: island at first.
0: Like the big island or Oahu?
1: The Oahu. Okay. Near the airport probably. Okay. Or just on that island.
0: Is that where where did Terrence McKenna? Was he on the big island? He was on
1: a big island. I like and that. he and Kathleen had a eight acre forest garden there that they still have.
0: Did you botan- go to it? Did no, you? I haven't. Is it still, there. is it still a thing? Cause I know that was, that was where he was living when he died. Terrence McKenna died of uh, glioblastoma, right? He had a, like a brain tumor. Yeah. Rare brain
1: cancer. They still have, or Kathleen Harrison does run botanical dimensions and that's part of it.
0: Which it's still happening. I feel like the mission of botanical dimensions and other organizations like it, especially with like climate change, like beginning to really wreak havoc it's important work and then like there is that and, and botanical dimensions like it preserves plant species yeah that are going extinct otherwise or they're trying to make sure we don't lose this stuff
1: yeah especially plants that humans have used since the forest and aboriginal tribes are all getting more Smaller
0: and the and the forests are getting clear cut so they can graze cattle or whatever it is, yeah, and then there's also, and I'm gonna botch the name of the project or what the organization is that does this, but as a uh survivalist tool for humanity in you know in case the shit really hits the fan, isn't there like a up in the like what Scandinavia somewhere like or up in Greenland or something like an underground bank of seeds for all of the plant foods that we eat.
1: Yeah, I've heard about that.
0: Right, but I heard that it's thawing and it's getting to the point where they're worried that like it's not going to be able to keep.
1: Hmm. So, Already?
0: Yeah. <laughs> or they least... should have thought of that. Yeah. So it's just I, But I guess... that
1: seems like a small almost a distraction. Like how's that going to save everyone? I don't know. It could save some people like after the apocalypse there's only hundreds of people and they find that or
0: something. They got to get the seeds so they can re you know start this project over
1: or actually Monsanto in a lot of foreign countries farmers have to buy their seed every single year their genetically modified seed to replant it's illegal for them to use their own seeds so maybe like if Monsanto takes over people could go there
0: what the fuck is wrong with Monsanto that's an awful company they're I mean-
1: just a corporation in the in the industry where it's especially damaging if you don't follow the laws or if you have a lot of influence over the government,
0: yeah, like profit motive and food supply, yeah, there's a lot of uh it seems like there's a lot of possibility for darkness there,
1: yeah, I feel like any corporation that in their they're one of the biggest maybe.
0: I remember seeing like a sixty minutes piece on them, and then didn't they make like a Matt Damon movie about Monsanto or something? I, they've, they a, did? they've appeared I don't know I, I'm remembering badly, but I you know they've appeared over the years multiple times to me as sort of this uh almost cartoonishly evil corporate entity.
1: Yeah, I heard about them peripherally a lot, listening to punk music in middle school. (laughs) They would always be protesting Monsanto. But I didn't pay attention to them that much again until learning about glyphosate and that they'd begun
0: selling it. Didn't glyphosate just get uh, banned in Europe? Or isn't there legislation moving around over there? Because they're recognizing this ahead of us.
1: Yeah, they're recognizing it. And Monsanto wanted a 15-year extension but they were only able to get five years. And then some countries have said they're going to ban it Germany. And then when they did the vote on the 15 year extension, like eight countries voted against it. And all those countries
0: are going to ban it probably. Yeah. Cause it's like the thing about this that's so terrifying is that it's not like you just like eat an ear of corn that has glyphosate on it. And all of a sudden you feel these effects. Like it's a build. Yeah, And it's also a situation where we haven't necessarily seen the full picture in terms of how this is going to manifest. You know, it's, it's like a, it's a process of years of ingesting this stuff and it has this growing negative effect. And, you know, suddenly you've got some illness or some immune deficiency or some terrible, you know, disease.
1: Yes. Stephanie Seneff, that MIT researcher has linked it to like tens of modern diseases showing how it contributes or causes them
0: any fatal diseases
1: i think all of them like oh. parkinson's alzheimer's it's linked to all these things cancers and she also with anthony Samson has put out this theory that glyphosate resembles one of the 20 amino acids that your body uses to build itself and it gets mistaken for one of those. So it gets incorporated into our bodies. Oh, and that makes it really hard to get out. And it gets incorporated to collagen. So all our collagen is slightly misshapen.
0: What's collagen? It's like... Oh, like your joints, down? Or your joints, okay.
1: Like nose and stuff. So you... None of us feel as good as we can,
0: could. Can you clean your body out? I mean, I know there's such a thing as like fasting and eating, uh, you know, juicing, all these different methods people use, but can you, if you have this shit in your body, can you flush your system or is once it's in there, is it sort of in there?
1: You can, your body naturally gets rid of it over time. And the ones that are incorporated into proteins, your body also naturally breaks down proteins and builds new ones over time. So over time, if you avoid it, you can get much less of it and you, I think have much less
0: of it in me. The- so what, like uh, along with this shift from corporate pharmaceuticals to psychedelics, the integration of cannabis, you know, cannabis, especially I think, but tobacco and Kratom and, um, LSD, psilocybin. Mm-hmm. You've also, I think shifted, uh, the way that you eat food. It's like, this, yeah. it's a holistic plan that you're on and you're constantly tweaking, but I'm, I'm always, I can't tell you how many times, I want to like text you or email you and be like, how can I eat this? <laughs> because I feel like you're doing the work, you know, you're like doing all this reading and I'm like, God, I just wish I could ask. Cause I am forever in limbo on this stuff and searching for somebody who knows more than I do. Um, but since I have you here, I'll try to knock out as much of this as I can. Like, wh- what are you eating and uh, how has it changed for you? Like, uh, Growing up in Florida, I ate, I ate fast food a lot,
1: Burger King, Chick-fil-A, and all that. And then when I went to college, I still eat, ate pretty bad. I ate, like, hot dogs from hot dog stands, and they're encrusted nuts and stuff. And then that's when I looked into how to feel less depressed. Then I began eating more organic food and plants and things like flaxseed oil And that continued for a few years, five to six years. And I was vegetarian vegetarian or vegan throughout this time. And then I got pretty into raw veganism, where you only eat raw food.
0: Is that macrobiotic? I never know the difference. No, macrobiotic, you eat a lot of brown
1: rice and other cooked food. Oh, okay. This thing you eat, mostly fruit and juices and nuts. And then in Taiwan in 2014, I saw I had this black spot on my tooth. And I got really worried. And it hurt.
0: Which tooth? Where, where was it? Right? One of my
1: front teeth. Okay. You can still see it a little. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then I looked on Amazon I searched natural cures for tooth decay or something like that and I found this book Cure Tooth Decay and it talks about how it referenced this book published in 1939 by this dentist Weston A. Price who visited a lot of aboriginal tribes and studied their diet and he found that they got 10 times more fat soluble vitamins which are and compounds found in animal fats and four times more minerals four times or more than modern people and this caused a lot of degeneration and other problems and before then i had always been confused about whether meat was required or healthy but i'd read some things some articles online saying how like animal fats can make you less depressed i'd gotten I'd started reading that years before the tooth thing, and I'd begun eating meat occasionally and then this book talked about the Aboriginal tribes how they all ate meat and then I still felt the same reasons I did when I was vegetarian vegan for not wanting to eat meat, factory
0: farms and Clear-cutting forests, yeah. pollution. Yeah, all those reasons. Suffering of animals.
1: Yeah. But then getting into how aboriginals used animals and how they lived in harmony with it and learning about animals that are grown more humanely, like as part of farms where their fertilizers used to grow the crops in a in cycle. I began to feel less bad eating those kinds of meat. And then the nutritional aspect was convincing to me. I felt like this could make me less depressed and be able to think better. And to heal my tooth, that was the main reason. The book explained how this would stop or it could heal my tooth decay. Did it? Yeah, it's started it and it's better, I think.
0: Yeah, it doesn't look. I mean, it looks doesn't look bad. Yeah. To everybody listening, Taos Taos teeth are they look wonderful. <laughs> really, I think they're not white. You look healthy. Right? That's good. If you feel because this is the thing. Uh, I think after I read Trip, I read it a while ago because I got it in galley form. Very excited to read it. I read it in like two days, and I emailed you, and I was thinking about like the, tr- the tradition that the book lives in, in terms of like other books like it on the shelf, Mm. it's unique because of its subject matter and your particular approach, which I think is, uh, you know, not, it's, it's not the normal approach, uh, in quotes, you know, but, uh, it's sort of like this story of, of renewal and redemption, not redemption, but uh, renewal
1: and recovery
0: and recovery. Yeah. And, uh, I just, I feel like that is, uh, I don't know. There's something about it that, that sort of makes me smile because I think for people who in our society are familiar with these narratives, there's so much in it that will be familiar and probably exciting, you know, and, uh, new, that's the thing is that it's not, you know, in a way it follows that track in that particular narrative, the recovery narrative, Mm -hmm. but I think that your approach uh, at least for the time being, is is new. Were you conscious of that as you were going through all of this and writing the book? Like, were you were you aware of the fact that you were writing in that particular like literary tradition?
1: Yeah, a recovery book. And I was reluctant at first to conceptualize my life as a recovery, because then I feel like wherever I go and whatever I do, I would be framing it within my recovery. So I felt reluctant to do that. But then I saw that I could recover from a lot of other things besides pharmaceutical drugs. So my recovery expanded to include everything. And that seems fine to go around thinking I'm recovering from everything. Partly because then I can still use drugs, which really
0: interests me. Yeah, you, you use drugs differently, it was, you know, especially now than most people. I think most people, yeah. I mean, I feel like it's, it's more thoughtless. It's more just like trying to numb oneself, um, from reality. Whereas I feel like, especially with like psychedelics, you're trying to engage with reality. It's not, it's not really as much of an escape. And in fact, I feel like sometimes it brings all that stuff to bear, you know, in ways that are uncomfortable. (laughs) Like, you might, it might be too much reality sometimes, you know, if you're in the depths of like a psilocybin trip and you're, you know, so the drug, those drugs can kind of show you what you might not want to see, but maybe what you need to see.
1: Yeah. And they give me much more information than say Xanax. I find myself overwhelmed with information sometimes in that, and and deliberately take time to just take notes on what I've already experienced.
0: So you feel, uh, Markedly better, yeah, I do. You're in a much better space, and you feel like this is a like a permanent shift. I can't imagine you going back to like Xanax and the stuff that you were doing, you know, early in early Taipei.
1: Yeah, in the first few years of this, like in 2013, 14, and even up to 2016, sometimes I would fantasize about going back and just using <laughs> drugs recklessly and having all these highs and lows. But that has gradually stopped, and now I feel really committed to this.
0: Well, I uh, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed the book, and it's especially interesting to have read Taipei and then to read this. In some ways, I feel like they're they're like a matching set. Yeah, maybe Pierre, it's a trilogy, it. or maybe it's a trilogy. Maybe Leave Society will in some way be an extension. But these two feel deeply personal. Um, I mean, to the point where Trip, it's like the art, the cover art is your own drawing, these uh, mandalas that you've been doing. By the way, you're really fucking good. Like, not only are you a good writer, but you're also like a good visual artist. I like those.
1: The visual art is just because of how much time I spend on it.
0: I want one. You won't give them. You <laughs> yeah, them, I'll though. give
1: you one. I'll make you one.
0: I like that. Like, like the detailed ones. Like I would frame it. I think they're beautiful.
1: I've given ones to my girlfriend and she's framed them.
0: Yeah. This
1: podcast room is much better, by the way. Last time I was here, it <laughs> was in a dark, tinny, gray garage.
0: There was like, yeah, the, the old garage was very poorly lit. There was like a wasp's nest in the garage there's probably like a can of glyphosate like something there's like roundup yeah. <laughs> Roundup. I, I actually used to the spray guy. the microphone with uh with uh, pesticides before that would talk to my Sterilized. Guests.
1: <laughs> and I'm farther away from you yeah I remember last time I was sitting
0: right in front of you it was not a, it was not the greatest setup but uh, very lucky to be in this room it's a it's a much nicer place to record and uh, I'm just happy to see you man and I'm happy that you're doing well and I'm always fascinated by what you write. And, um, I consider you to be a really, uh, good and much needed resource in this world. Like you're doing good work and, uh, I appreciate it.
1: Thank you. I think the same of you, all your talks, podcasts.
0: All right, guys, there you go. That's Tao Lin. His new book is called trip. Psychedelics, Alienation and Change. It is available now from Vintage. It is the official May pick of the Nervous Breakdown book club. You can find Tao online at TaoLynn.info You can follow him on Twitter. His handle over there is at Tao underscore Lyn. The book one more time is called Trip. Psychedelics Alienation and Change Thanks to Kill Rockstars as always for the uh, theme song music and the band Stereo Total. Thanks guys. I appreciate that. Thanks to the cigarette royalty for the interstitial music. If you would like to support this show, patreon.com otherpplpod If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at other Don't forget about the other people app. It's free. It's available wherever you get your apps. It's a great way to listen. Go get the other people app. So I think I forgot to ask Tao about his DMT trip and the self dribbling basketballs. God damn it. It's one of the best parts of the book. Maybe it's good that we didn't talk about it. You can read about it. Can't get everything. People sometimes ask me, like, what is it? Like, do you ever have any regrets? Is there an episode where you feel like you fucked it up? Or I feel like every episode I leave something on the table, whether I forget to ask a good question or I miss a joke. It's just part of the process. But uh, it's fun and interesting to learn more about psychedelics. This is an excellent book. And I think it's, uh, it's like one of these subject matters with Ayelet Waldman's book and Michael Pollan's book and Tao's book. It's in the ether. People are thinking about it. And it, it seems like it's no accident that people are thinking about it increasingly in the Trump years. <laughs> it's time to, time to take some psychedelics. Just be careful. And uh, I'm sorry about the uh, the white jeans thing and the monologue. It's just what happened today. You know, I have to do a monologue. I got to talk about what's going on. Now it's in your head forever. You're never gonna forget it. You're welcome.